Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you're looking for a place to connect with other believers, an opportunity to study God's Word and to share and and to grow, let me invite you to join us at Calvary. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you have questions about our church or services, call us at 479-442-4634. Or you can find out information through social media or our website. That is calvaryfedville.com. You can also email us at info at calvaryfedville.com. We would just love to connect with you and your family. Now on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our study through the book of Philippians. He'll be looking at verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1 with a message entitled Thanksgiving and Prayer. Let's listen together. Well, those last two songs that we just sang, my heart is filled with thankfulness. And the prayer, Show Us Christ, are two songs that could very easily have been inspired by the text that we will read and look at more closely today. They speak very clearly uh, from these words. Though I don't know for sure what the inspiration was for those two songs, uh, they are perfect and in perfect alignment with our text today. Now, Paul is writing to a group of Christ followers living in a Roman colony known as Philippi of Macedonia. That's modern-day Greece. This was the very first church that we know of that was birthed on the continent of Europe. It was, as we said last week, sometimes may even consider an accidental church, although there's no such thing in reality. There are no accidents for any of us anywhere in life. Everything that transpires is in the fulfillment and is in the plan of God for us. But Paul didn't realize that God intended for him to go to Macedonia. Uh, God had to lead him along by closing some doors and opening others to get him to this Roman colony uh, there on the continent of Europe in Greece. He addressed this letter to saints, that's the redeemed, the saved people who were in that church. That's the only people who are truly in any church. Saints are not some uh, level of super spiritual Christians. It's not some designation that's decided by a religious organization or a church council or some, um, you know, ultimate uh, human representative of Christ in this world. I just read yesterday about a nun who died four years ago uh, in uh, the state, I believe it was, of Missouri. And for some reason, her body has been exhumed. She has been dug up. Uh, She was not embalmed before burying her. And in four years in the grave, according to the news report, her body has shown no deterioration at all. She She is not so far returning to the dust from whence she was made. And the article went on to say, this will make her in consideration for sainthood. Well, I want to tell you, there's no such thing as human designated saints. The only saints there are, are the redeemed people of God. And everyone that's been saved by the grace of God, that's been called, that has been loved, that is being kept by the grace of God, These are saints. You are his saints. So he's writing to saints in Philippi, to the church members. He's writing to the overseers, that is the pastors, the leaders of that church. And he's writing to the deacons, those who lead and organize the ministry to the body of Christ, the servants of the church. So with that in mind, 
Let's go to our text. We've considered the first two verses of Philippians chapter 1. We want to look at verses 3 through 11 this morning. And I basically just have two uh, major points for you. I've divided this paragraph into two parts. There's a natural break, so we will read it not all in full, but we'll read it in those two parts. First of all, verses 3 through 8, this is a prayer of thanksgiving. This entire paragraph is Paul's prayer for these believers. And he prays, first of all, a prayer of thanksgiving. Listen to these words, verses 3 through 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, these verses, I want to unpack them and really uh, seek to try to help you understand what all he's saying here and draw your attention to some thoughts. But these verses we've just read explain to us, give us insight into why Paul was praying for these Philippian saints. We see in these verses the apostle's heart. We see his motivation. And there can be no doubt in our minds, if you were listening, as I read, if you were following along, if you saw those words for yourself, there is no doubt that Paul deeply loves these Christ followers. Not just some of them, but all of them. Notice the times he refers to you all. He's trying to be a southerner. He doesn't understand y'all. He keeps saying you all. And at least he's not, not saying youans. And we're thankful for that. But verse 4, he says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. He says it twice in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. And then verse 8. I yearn. That word means to desire earnestly. It means to long for, to have an affection, a deep affection from my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I think that's significant. Paul loved every single member of this church. Now don't you know that like any church, that somewhere in that church in Philippi, that there were some knotheads? I mean, there are knotheads in every church, right? Don't you know that in that congregation, there were no doubt maybe some, some gossips, some people who were just a little too loose-tongued, maybe some selfish members, some who were maybe entirely in their personalities unlovable, some who maybe were not as faithful as they should be. Don't you know that there were people in that church that weren't all really living up to what it means to be a child of God, and yet Paul expresses his love for every last one of them. I think there are two words that he uses that explains why he loves this congregation. I think he gives to us 
two insights. Look at verse 5 again. I'll actually start reading again in verse 3, but follow and listen for this phrase in verse 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Now listen, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He loved them because they were partners in the gospel. Partners in the gospel. This word partners, this word partnership, it is the word, the Greek word koinonia. You've heard that word probably. It's a very familiar word in the New Testament. It is a word that has no direct um, correlation in our English language. It gets interpreted four or five different ways in the New Testament. There's not a perfect English equivalent, but it speaks to what it means to be the people of God in the world. It speaks to what we have in common. It speaks to what we have been made to be because we have the highest of all uh, common denominators. You see, anytime you get a group of people together, whether it's small or large, when you get a group of, a group of people together, ultimately that group will devolve down to the least common denominator whatever it is that they can find in common on the most basic level. But when Christians get together, when the church gathers, when Christians are in one place, understand this, it is not the least common denominator that holds us together. We are held together by the highest common denominator of all. That's why a group as diverse, although this is not a large group, as diverse as this congregation is, there's nothing in the world that would draw this particular group together except one thing, and that is God, the Holy Spirit, living in our lives. Because of a common experience of salvation, because of the presence of God. This word partnership, koinonia, is sometimes translated as fellowship. And by the way, that's speaking of a relationship, not some social get-together to enjoy cookies and punch. It's fellowship, sharing something. It's two fellows in the same ship. That's how one country preacher defined fellowship. It's sometimes uh, translated as uh, here, participation or partnership. It means to share in common. It is the same word where we get the word communion. The communion of saints who take communion together, the oneness of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to tell you something, folks. There is nothing more counter-cultural in our world today than this. You want to do something counter-cultural? Don't rebel against the Lord. Try following Him for a change. That will, that will be counter-cultural. Now, when I was a kid and when some of you were kids, uh, you know, people who didn't uh, confess some kind of faith in the Lord or respect for their country, their flag, uh, our country's God, people who didn't go to church on Sunday, they were kind of rebellious. They were countercultural. That is all turned upside down today. People who will gather like this on the Lord's Day. This is countercultural. People that will love and devote themselves to other people. That's countercultural. We live in a me first culture, a me first mentality. All the way from do what makes you happy to the inescapable selfie photo that some just can't keep their se themselves from taking and posting on their social media. I'll be honest with you. I love you and all, but I don't spend a lot of time in Facebook and Instagram to see what you're doing, to see what you're having for lunch, 
to see what your latest picture looks like. That's not what it means to be the people of God. We live in a very individualistic, uh, do what makes you happy. Discover your own truth. A selfie photo world. We embrace individual freedom and decision making that reflects our own interest over those of the organized group, the church or the government. That is unchristian. Christianity consistently urges us to value God first and others second. If you don't believe that, just read the gospel. Read Gospels. Read Matthew, where Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, first of all, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love others. Christianity isn't intended to be lived in a self-dependent dependent silo. The church was established with Christ as its head, and we are the body. And there's an interrelatedness in the body. You need me, I need you. It is a holy, covenantal relationship and fellowship. It is sharing in community. It's a community that involves deep, and close-knit participation of its people. And Paul loved this church because of their partnership in the gospel. They shared many things together. They shared Christ. They shared the Holy Spirit. They shared their worship. They shared all kinds of things, and they shared their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me step aside from the points of this message and just give you something very practical. I want to just list for you seven ways, seven ways to practice koinonia in our church. Seven ways for our fellowship, our communion to be sweeter, to be more in line with what God has in mind for his church. First of all, the spiritual gifts. Did you know that when God saved you, God gave you at least one spiritual gift? Did you know that? I know that some of you think, well, I'm still trying to find what I'm gifted at. I just, uh, I'm just all thumbs when it comes to spiritual matters. No, you're not. If you've been saved by the grace of God, understand God has given you a gift and more likely a package of gifts that God gifts his church with divine enablement. Some used to preach, well, these are the talents you were born with. No, you were born physically with physical talents, but you were born again with spiritual gifts. And both of them are important to use for the benefit of the body of Christ. Now, that's a whole topic to go into about spiritual gift, gifts. But understand, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. To serve others. So, spiritual gifts. That's number one. Number two, hospitality. Hospitality. By the way, it is a spiritual gift in and of itself. It is also one of the one another commands of Scripture. Show hospitality to one another. Be hospitable to each other, offering food, clothing, shelter, more, whatever you have to give. Show hospitality in the body of Christ. Number three, togetherness. Togetherness. Use every opportunity to gather together as the people of God. Not an occasional journey to church on Sunday. Not an every once in a while appearance in Bible study. But whether it's worship, Bible study, small group time, meals, service opportunities, work days on Saturdays, whatever it is, use every opportunity to gather together with God's people, togetherness. Number four, acceptance. By the way, that's a one another command also. Accept one another. Accept and include each other even when one among us is weak in faith or unusual in personality or attitude. 
Understand, you need to accept one another. Overcome differences for the sake of Christ. Lord knows he overcame a lot of differences to save you and me. Amen? All right. Acceptance. Number five, encouragement. That too is a one another command. Encourage and support each other. And when needed, hold each other accountable. Accountable. Not only encouragement, but number six, service. Now this was already mentioned under spiritual gifts, but we can serve each other, whether watching each other's children or providing a meal when someone is sick or otherwise unable. There's so many ways we can serve each other, but doing so builds koinonia, builds communion, builds fellowship in the church. And number seven, sharing our abundance. I know that some of you are thinking, I do not have abundance uh, of any kind. I am living on the edge. But understand, all of us can share, if nothing else, in our basic tithes and offerings. We share what God has blessed us with. And understand, God will entrust you with more when he feels and knows he can trust you with what he's already given to you. Okay? So the way to more abundance, whatever that looks like, very likely depends on what you're doing with what you already have. But as you share with others, these build up the body of Christ. They build up the koinonia. And by doing these things, we bring God and others into full unity with ourselves and us with them. And remember that Jesus modeled all of this and so did the apostles. So one of the reasons that Paul is so diligent in his prayers for this church and so went deep in, in thanksgiving for them was because they were partners in the gospel, because of their partnership in the gospel. Then he gives a second reason in verse 7. Listen for it. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Did you catch the phrase, partakers with me of grace? They had a partnership in the gospel, and they were all partakers in grace, partakers of God's grace. Do you remember his blessing? He spoke to them in verse 2. We talked about it last week. It is the way Paul begins every single letter that he writes. All of the epistles of Paul in the New Testament have somewhere on those first two or three verses this blessing, grace and peace be unto you. And we talked about the order of those, grace and peace, not peace and grace. The world thinks that if you find peace some way, then you can experience grace. But that's backwards. You can never earn, you can never uh, work, inherit peace apart from grace. Grace has to come from God before there can be any kind of peace at all. And we're not talking about just peace of heart, although that's the most personal kind of peace. Peace with God as a result of a right relationship with Him. But I'm talking about cosmic peace in the universe, peace in our world. While the world tells us that everything is moving towards doom and gloom, chaos and destruction, while the world tells us repeatedly that uh, we're headed towards all kinds of climate change and it's going to destroy us and all these things, understand the Bible, if you read the end of the book, tells us everything is headed towards peace and restoration in the Lord. And it's not a peace and restoration that we bring in. It's a peace and restoration that is a result of God's favor towards his creation. God looks with favor on you and on me. It is God's kindness. 
generated by his love that caused him to send his son Jesus to die in our place. God's favor, undeserved by us, paid for in full by Jesus. God's favor that we can find peace personally and through that same favor and blessing of God, this world will one day be what God created it to be when he created man in the Garden of Eden. It will be perfect again. It is grace than peace. And he's saying to them, listen, you are not only partners in the gospel, but you're partners in the gospel because like me, you have partaken of God's grace. You have benefited from God's grace. It is a grace that gives us a right standing with God, that gives us salvation, that makes us the people of God. But listen, Paul says it is the grace also to suffer with him, with each other, and for him. The very last verse of this chapter, Philippians 1, listen to what Paul says. For it has been granted to you it is a gift of grace. It is a blessing. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's salvation, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. In other words, listen, we not only share in the gift of salvation, we not only have this in common, but we have in common that by God's grace, it has been granted to us to suffer for him and for his sake also. Me in my Roman prison and you there in Philippi with the pressures you feel from the government and all the experiences that you have being the people of God in a world that despises God. You say, well, why in the world or how in the world is suffering a gift from God? Why do you say that's a gift of grace? Why did Paul say to you it has been granted, given as a gift? Well, remember what Paul says to Timothy when he writes to him, which by the way, Timothy is also a, a co-signer to this letter that's being sent to the church at Philippi. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, he says, Timothy, suffer with Christ and for Christ. For those who suffer with Christ and for Christ will also reign with Christ. Timothy, don't ever forget. Those that suffer for Christ, that experience hardship, not because of their stupidity, not because of their dumb decisions. Listen, we suffer enough from that, don't we? Man, I, I suffer from so many stupid decisions. I am, I am king of stupid decisions. It's one of my spiritual gifts. I'm very good at that. I can make dumb decisions. Some last a lot longer than others. And you know what? I would just say this to you. Be careful about the decisions you make because some of them you never have the opportunity to come back and make right. Oh, you can be forgiven, but you'll live with the decisions the rest of your life. So be careful about that. But I'm not talking about the dumb decisions we bring upon ourselves and the consequences and the suffering. But I'm talking about the suffering for Christ's sake. The suffering you experience because you take a stand for God. The suffering you experience because you choose to obey God instead of the world. The suffering that comes as a result of doing the right thing, no matter what the cost is. Now, when we suffer like that, count it all joy. Count it all joy, James says. And Paul writes to Timothy, knowing this, that if you suffer for him and with him, one day you will reign with him. You will reign with him. You know what that means? That makes you royalty. It makes you royalty. You're sons and daughters of the king. 
you are princes and princesses of the king of glory. And when you identify and suffer with him and you accept that gift of grace that comes from God to do the right thing and to suffer in this life, he says in the next life, you're going to reign with him. That's why that is a blessed privilege. That's why it is a gift of grace. So he says to them, you are partners in the gospel. We share a common communion as the people of God and indwelt by the spirit of God. We are partakers of grace. And by the way, that word partakers is just another form of that same word, koinonia. We share in God's grace. But notice very quickly before I move to point number two, which by the way, won't take nearly as long as point number one. So don't break out in a cold sweat, all right? He says in verse four, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, I make my prayer with joy, with joy. Praying for you people at Philippi is my joy. The word means gladness. He's introducing a form of the word rejoicing. Now listen to me. Joy, rejoicing, whatever form of that word you find in this book, it's going to be mentioned almost 16 times. Actually, over 16 times. It is one of the themes of the book of Philippians. That's why almost any commentary you read, almost any book that refers to Philippians is going to refer to the fact that this is a book with the theme or the motif of joy. It is a joyous book. That's why we're calling this series The Joy of the Gospel. And my desire for you, dear church, is that when we get to the end of this, if God allows us to make it through it, I just send him come first. That way he can finish it for us and get it right. We can hear it maybe from the Apostle Paul directly. But if we get through it, I pray that we will have a greater appreciation and joy for the gospel and for one another than we have ever known before. He said, it is a joy for me to pray for you faithfully. Listen, it's a joy that you and I have to pray for one another as well. But not only that, he expresses joy in his prayers He expresses thanksgiving in his prayers, but he also expresses faith in his prayers. One of the great verses of this book, very well known, often heard of, is verse 6. Hear the faith of the apostle as he says, I am sure of this, that he, speaking of whom? God. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ is referring to the end of days, the end of time. When Jesus comes back, when we are with him, when that day arrives, understand there'll be nothing in your life that God has started that will be left incomplete that the one who in eternity past chose to love you and chose to name you as one of his children even before you drew a breath, even before you were created, you already belonged to him. He had called you. He had chosen you. He began a good work in you. It's why he placed you and birthed you into the family that he did, as odd as that may seem and as counterproductive as maybe that may seem because maybe you weren't born into a Christian home. Maybe you were born into a broken home. Maybe you don't even know the family you were born into. 
Maybe you don't understand all the circumstances of your life, but it's all a part of God's divine plan. God was weaving together the threads of your life even before you were born and drew your first breath. Even when you were in your mother's womb, he was knitting you together. He was giving you your looks, your appearance. He was already giving you your spiritual gifts and making the potential inside of you. And he is doing all of this. And though we can only see from the underside of what, of what that design looks like, the, the loose threads and the ragged edges of the quilt, understand he's working from the top side and he sees the pattern beautifully. And it is beautiful. Although we may be under the clouds and see only the darkness and the threat, a threatening uh, sound of the thunder and the lightning, understand above those clouds all is brilliant and it dazzles in the light of the one who is the Son of God and the Son of Righteousness. He is, He is going to bring your life to completion. Right now, it may feel like you're on the very brink the very edge of coming apart at the seams. But understand, he's got the seams all taken care of. I am sure of this. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to use those words. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What an encouragement. For these people experiencing some hardship, trying to walk as God's people in the world, to hear that from God's apostle, that God is in control of all of it. So this prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving, of joy, of confidence, of faith. And now he's going to go to verse 9, and I want you to hear a prayer of supplication. Now the first a prayer of thanksgiving, he's giving to them his motivation and why he prays for them. It's because of his love for them and the confidence he has of God's work in them. Now we get down to the nitty gritty. We get down to the things that he's praying for them, the specific request of God. And we read these words beginning in verse nine. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This too is the word of the Lord. Well, verses 3 through 8 gives us the why. Paul prayed for these Philippian believers. These verses give to us insight as to what he prays for them. The first was his heart and motivation. Now we see his desires for this church. Now I'm going to tell you something. Look right this way. Everyone look just this way in just a moment. We'll go back to those verses and point out just a few things and draw it to a close. But I want you to hear this. These verses, like a number of other prayers recorded in Paul's letters and in the Gospels in the New Testament, teach us how to pray. They teach us how to pray. Beloved, we have, I have much to learn about how to pray for myself for my family, for you. We have much to learn. We know so very little about how to pray. And the evidence of that is just listening to ourselves. By the way, another of those one another commandments is the commandment to what? Pray for one another. So if we're going to obey God's command, we need to know how to do it. And before I draw your attention back to these verses, 
I'm reminded of, of Jesus's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. You remember Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples that last Passover. He's going to be crucified the next day. They have not yet gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pour out his heart to his father. But we have him praying in the upper room. And I want you to know this was a sincere and an honest prayer to his father. But it was spoken out loud for the benefit of his disciples to hear it. They needed to hear what Jesus was praying for them. They needed to hear it. Just like sometimes we need to hear each other pray for one another. Now, on another occasion, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gave them the model prayer or an example of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You memorized that in Bible school a long time ago. And that is an example of how to pray also, but it was a model prayer. John 17 is his heart prayer for his disciples. And if you go and read John chapter 17, it's interesting what you will not find in that chapter. And by the way, he not only prays for his disciples who were there in the room with him 2,000 years ago in that upper room, the latter paragraph or so of that prayer, he turns his attention to those who will be saved as a result of their ministry. That means he's praying for you and me. And everybody that gets saved after that as a result of the spread of the gospel. And you'll notice Jesus never prays for health or for healing for his disciples. Now, he healed people, but you don't hear him praying for health or, or healing. And yet, when you ask for prayer requests in church, what's the first thing we always mention? The sick and the afflicted. Those facing surgeries, those experiencing this hardship, those who caught the latest round of COVID or whatever. And listen, there's nothing wrong with us asking God for healing. It's not that that's wrong. It's just that it's really way down the list on, on what is a priority in life. But it exposes to us how earthbound our thinking and our value system is. We pray more about people's physical health than we do about their spiritual health or even their relationship with God. As one pastor once said, we do more praying for God to keep people out of heaven than we do for God to get people into heaven. And that's the truth. That's the truth. But Jesus didn't pray for health or healing. He did not pray for blessings, generic or otherwise. He did not pray for prosperity, for prosperity for his followers. He did not pray for their financial blessings. He did not pray for the growth of his church. He did not pray for the deliverance from suffering or of hardship or of persecution. He did not pray for any of those things. And guess what? Neither did the Apostle Paul in this text. What did he pray for? Well, look at verse 9. What did he say in verse 9? It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. The first thing that he prays for this church is for their love to grow. Love for whom? Well, it has to first of all be God, right? Our love for God. May our love for God abound more and more. That means to go over and above. May it overflow. May it be in full quantity. It has to do with continual increase, never slowing down, abounding not only in inwardly, but outwardly in performance in the way that we live our life. Guess what? You know when this house is gonna be full? You know when this house is going to be full on Sunday? 
when people start loving God. I'm going to tell you another one of my spiritual gifts. I can guilt people right and left. I can. But you know what God is showing me of late? It's not my place to guilt anybody. When people love God, they will want to worship God. When people love God, they will want to be not only in a place of worship on Sunday, but they'll want to be among God's people. When people love God more than they love the lake, more than they love their bed, more than they love their favorite sports team, more than they love whatever, 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 God's house will be full. We live in a time of very little love for God. And I want you to know, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I don't love God as I should. My pra- you need to pray for me that I would love God more and more. But not only love God more and more, but in doing that, something is naturally going to follow, loving each other more and more. And by the way, it just so happens. That's another one of those one another commandments, right, Pastor Dan? It's the one mentioned most often in Scripture. Love one another. He prayed for their love not just to grow, but to abound, overflowing. He prayed for this love. Now notice, because you can't separate this. He said, it is right for me to feel this. Well, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. He's saying not just love as an emotion, as a feeling, but it has to be love grounded in knowledge and insight, understanding, perception to what? The truth of God. It is love grounded in truth. It is grounded in our knowledge and our discernment. Not a love based on feelings or simply emotion, but a love based in the truth of God and His Word. You want to grow in the kind of love that God wants you to grow in, it has to be grounded in the Word of God. The Word of God. You've got to read it. You've got to study it. You've got to memorize it. You've got to let it become a part of your daily life. And as it does, you've got to apply it to your life. And the Lord, how can I live up to, how can I, with your help, fulfill this scripture? How can I become the living Word for people around to see your truth in my life? He prayed Not only that this love would grow based on knowledge and all discernment, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. Now, what does that mean? So that you may approve. The word approve means to put to the test, to test it, to prove it, to see what is of the greatest value, to approve what is excellent excellent or what is essential. What he's saying is this. He said, only through a knowledge of the truth of the Word of God, only through growing in your knowledge of the Word can you test, prove, discern, and understand what is the true priority in life, what is of greatest value, what is essential. What is it that will help you know what's real? The book. The book. And he said, and by doing that, by doing that, you will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pure and blameless for the day of Christ and filled with the fruit of righteousness. Want to be pure? You've got to grow in the Word and grow in your love for God and for your brothers and sisters. 
You want to be blameless until the day of Christ. You want to be filled with the fruit and the blessings of righteousness. Basically, he's saying, my prayer is that your lives would be a reflection of Jesus Christ to the world around you. And that's what he's praying for us. And then he gives us the ultimate, ultimate goal of his prayers. That you would be, that you would be to the glory and praise of Christ. The glory and praise of God. Ultimately, his prayer was that these Philippian believers would bring glory to God with their lives. And he showed them the pathway through loving God more, loving each other more, with a love based upon truth, based upon the Word of God, proving and discerning what is the real essential priorities of life, and so to live in such a way that you are pure, that you are blameless, not walking around every day guilt-ridden and under the shame of your sin, but recognizing you've been forgiven, you've been made innocent, you are complete in Christ, living to the glory and praise of God. Now, folks, when we start praying like that for one another, it'll make a difference. I'll leave you with two questions. They'll be here on the screen. Question number one, what would it do in our lives if we truly love the Lord's church? The Lord's church, capital C church, the big church, his church in the world, that we would love what is the true church, the true people of God in this world, and the Calvary family in particular, what would happen in our lives if we truly love the Lord's church like Paul loved the Philippian church? Like Paul loved the Philippian church? Question number two, and how would it change and impact this fellowship if we learn to pray for one another like Paul prayed for the Philippians? I hope you'll think about those questions. I hope you will seriously consider them. Father, thank you for the truth of your word today. Thank you for this prayer by the Apostle Paul who teaches us not only why to pray, but how to pray. Father, help me, help us to love you more and to pray more in line with the Apostle more in line with your will for us. Help us to see beyond this earthly world with all of its challenges and all of its circumstances to see what is really real, to see what is eternal. Please forgive us of our sins. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.